Welcome back to the Yellow Box Podcast. This week, we're joined by our teaching pastor, Ian Simpkins, as we continue our series, That's Messed Up. For more information, please visit us at www.communitychristian.org. And remember, you can always find us on Sundays at the Yellow Box at 9.30 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 5 p.m. We hope to see you there. Good morning, Yellow Box. It's good to see you. How are you feeling? I'm so glad that you're here today. I, uh, I've seen a lot of resumes in my day. It's true. Uh, and you might be surprised to learn this, but some of them stretch the truth a little bit. Um, I recently saw one under the uh, achievements in education. There's a bullet point that says, I hope to one day get my PhD. Okay, and I hope one day to be six foot four. That sounds great for the hope. Or how about this guy? This resume here under the caption, um, I'm the best in the world. Uh, he's got database administration. He's got video editing. And at the bottom, chivalry. <laughs> the best in the world. Uh, some of you actually know that uh, I was homeschooled. So when I first started applying for jobs out of high school, I too would fudge some of my resumes. Um, on one resume, I put things like uh, I was the valedictorian of my class, which was true. Captain of all the sports offered, also true. And on one in particular, I said that I was the prom king and queen. Uh, I did not get that job at all. Okay, so these are like obvious over-the-top examples. Um, but what would you say if you saw a resume with qualifications like this? Graduated from Harvard with his MBA, uh, quickly climbed the ranks at McKinsey Consulting, recruited by a major energy company, became CEO within six years, Transforming the energy company into the largest wholesaler of gas and electricity with $27 billion traded in a single quarter. How many of you would be impressed by that resume, right? How many of us wouldn't want to hire somebody like that? And here's the truth. This wasn't exaggerated. This is an actual true resume. But what if I told you that this was the resume of a man named Jeff Skilling, responsible for the Enron collapse in 2001? Would that change the way that you feel about this resume a little bit? Of course it would. The thing is, if we spend our entire lives simply building resume virtues, I think that we risk missing the more important virtues. There's a guy named uh, David Brooks, who was a New York Times journalist, and he calls these eulogy virtues. So you have resume virtues, those are the skills that you bring to the marketplace, right? But then you have eulogy virtues, And those are the things that people are going to say at your funeral. Are you loving? Are you kind? Are you caring? Are you generous? In fact, I was at a funeral last night of a good friend of mine. And they said all of those things about his life. And you could feel it in the room. Not a single person mentioned the money he made or the companies he built, but the people that he loved. And I think that we all have a sense, right, that eulogy virtues are the more important virtues. But if we're really honest, if we like look at the energy we put in those two camps, wouldn't it say maybe the opposite? We know in our heart that eulogy virtues are important, but how many of us put far more energy into our resume virtues? Well, as Ted mentioned, uh, when week two of our series, That's Messed Up, we're following a man named Joseph in the book of Genesis And he's a man who has a bit of a crazy life, but he also models for us one of the most important eulogy virtues, and that's the virtue of integrity. So before we dive into his story, though, I think it's important to ask, why does integrity even matter? 
Does it even matter? Well, uh, we asked author, speaker, and longtime community attender and friend John Blumberg to weigh on the topic, who literally wrote the book on integrity. So let's see what John has to say. Integrity is one of those terms, those concepts, that's easier to toss around than it is to hold on to. We see it tossed about in the media, in corporate boardrooms, and yes, in church hallways. Yet do we really understand it? Not just know it, but rather internalize it and embrace it. It's a question I eventually had to ask myself. It was 2002, and an awful lot had happened. The lack of integrity of the leadership of Enron had not only destroyed that corporation, but it set in motion the implosion of Arthur Anderson. And at the time, Anderson was the largest professional services firm in the world. I'd spent an incredible 18-year career at Anderson, and although I had left the firm five years prior, it was still my family. The Chicago-based firm's implosion brought down the careers of 85,000 professionals around the globe in a matter of about six weeks. It was a very personal and a very raw experience. As tough as it was, I knew this story was about so much more than Enron or Arthur Anderson. It was a story about all of us, and it was about integrity. It was a wake-up call, and my fear was that we would hit the snooze on integrity and just go back to sleep. In a quick glance of the economic crisis of 2008, or most of the news today, would make you wonder if it's precisely what we continue to do. In looking up the definition of integrity, you'll find three useful words, whole, entire, and undiminished. You might picture that integrity is the condition of being integrated. We often think of integrity as a core value, yet I'd suggest that integrity itself is not a core value at all. It's rather the fabric of every core value. You might say that it's impossible to have integrity without knowing the values at your core. Not what you value, that most likely is about your wants, but rather what are your values? In a world where I do most of my work, I assume that 95% of professionals well into their careers knew their core values, but I couldn't have been more wrong. In fact, the percentage was correct, but unfortunately, just the opposite. You see, we make a dangerous assumption that we know our core values. And as I realized this about others, and ultimately in the mirror too, I developed a sophisticated tool to determine just how well someone knows their own core values. That sophisticated tool was simply a blank sheet of paper. You might try it sometime. It'll be harder than you think it is and the start of an amazing journey of discovery. This dangerous assumption that we know our core values probably explains why so many people resonated with two sentences that I included in Return on Integrity. We don't go running away from our values. We go drifting away. And one day we wake up in a place that we never meant to be, drifting in a direction that we never would have chosen. You see, it's the drift that ever so slowly drives a wedge into integrity, compromising our sense of being whole, entire, and undiminished. And every one of us are vulnerable to drifting. And our greatest protection from that drift is a prayerful discernment and ultimately a clear understanding of the values at our core long before a crisis ever begins. 
So I, I think integrity is what keeps us from that all too dangerous drift. Now here, here's what I know about uh, talks like this in particular. We often will get into it and someone will start thinking like, oh, I really wish so-and-so was here to hear this. Or so I, I want us to do a, a quick repeat after me just to make sure that we're clear, okay? So let's, let's, uh, let's begin. Uh, I recognize that this talk is for me, not the person I wish would hear it. Okay, great. We're all on the same page. So last week, we dove into the story of a man named Joseph. He was a teenager, just 17 years old, the 11th of 12 sons, and the favorite son to his aging father, Jacob. In fact, his father, Jacob, so preferred him that he gave him this really beautiful, ornate robe, and it didn't take long for the other, bro- the other brothers to sort of reach a breaking point. So one time, uh, when Joseph went to go visit his brothers in the field, they see Joseph in this incredible coat, and uh, they just kind of snap, actually. They literally strip him of everything. Uh, they chuck him in this well, and then they eventually sell him into slavery in Egypt. So this is where we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 39. So Joseph ends up being sold to a man named Potiphar, who was the captain of Pharaoh's guard. So he was, he was wealthy and influential. Um, so let's pick up his story here in verse 2. It says, The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered. He lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes, and he became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and all that he owned. The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian uh, because of Joseph. So, so here's sort of the scene. Um, Potiphar's paying attention. And he's noticing that there's this unique blessing on Joseph. And, and like everything Joseph touches just succeeds. So Potiphar's no dummy. He puts Joseph in charge of everything. And so, so things are like looking up for Joseph, right? Or, or so it seems. The story continues. Uh, now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Uh, scholars assert he probably looked a lot like Ted Canaris, somewhere in that category. Um, <laughs> and Potiphar's wife began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. Oh, subtle. Huh? <laughs> no, no, no parsing verbs there. Okay, so... This is kind of like a scene from Game of Thrones, right? It's a little bit twisted. It's a little upside down. But keep in mind the the power dynamic here. She's his master. He's the slave. Like, his very life is at risk here. So when when you consider what's at stake, I think it makes Joseph's response all the more incredible. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her. Which is, that's a, that's a bold way to begin talking to your master in the first place. Look, all right? My master trusted me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. Yeah, obvious, right. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. That, I think that's an incredible response. Now, um, notice what Joseph doesn't say here. He, he doesn't say, I'd, oh, I'd love to, but I'm seeing someone right now. <laughs> I just really want to focus on my career. I just don't want to ruin this friendship, you know? Like, he doesn't say that. He calls it what it is. He said, this would be a sin against your husband and against God. And this apparently, though, was not a one-time deal. 
she, she persists. She keeps hitting on him and Joseph keeps turning her down. So Joseph, is, he's showing incredible integrity here. You can kind of picture this, this back and forth. The Potiphar's wife will not give up. So one day, she gives everybody the day off except for Joseph. And when she's alone with him, she says those infamous words, come sleep with me, and grabs hold of his robe. So Joseph makes a break for it. Potiphar's wife is still holding on to the robe, and Joseph runs out of that palace naked as the day he was born. And just when you think Joseph has escaped her trap, Mrs. Potiphar then fabricates a story that paints Joseph as the aggressor. As you can imagine, uh, Mr. Potiphar was less than thrilled about this. So Potiphar throws Joseph in prison. And my guess is that it wasn't like a white collar resort prison like some of our governors reside in. It's a slow build, you'll get there. Um, Potiphar's wife misjudged Joseph's integrity entirely. Amidst all the challenge to compromise, his integrity holds up against her advances and she's left holding nothing but his clothes, crying wolf. And so Joseph did nothing wrong, but finds himself now without his coat, without his status, and and now in prison. So some of you, again, are thinking like, wow, two in a row, Ian, thanks for the depressing stories. Super glad I came back. Hang in there. What, What can we learn from Joseph's story? I think you've likely heard uh, that there are two things that we can count on in this world, right? Death and that the bears will be terrible. What would you say, taxes? <laughs> yes, taxes, death and taxes. But I, I would add a third, though. I think that we can always count on our integrity being put to the test. Always. Regardless of who you are, what brought you here, we can always count on our integrity being put to the test. So the first thing I would say is this. Don't, don't be surprised. Don't, don't be surprised. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. We should expect it. We should be ready for it. And I would argue that we should even anticipate it. The Apostle Paul, I think, knows this all too well. He knows the pressure of compromise. He's the one that actually denied knowing Jesus three times just hours before his crucifixion. And it's from that experience that he writes this. He says, stay alert. Pay attention. Keep your eyes open. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He doesn't do what often I think we're inclined to do is to paint the enemy like a kitty, right? Like a cute little puppy dog. He says, no, he's, he's a lion. He's an apex predator who's looking to devour. He says, don't be surprised. When you face situations where you're gonna wanna buckle under the pressure, you're gonna wanna compromise your integrity. He says, be ready for it. Expect it. Have your eyes open to it. There's a, uh, a German pastor, uh, my love, named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and uh, he lost his life for standing up to Adolf Hitler and the Nazi army. And here's how he describes the kind of temptation that attacks our integrity. He says, in our members, there is a slumbering inclination toward desire which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. 
All at once a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. How, how is that for a definition of temptation? It makes no difference whether it's sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or the love of fame and power or greed for money. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The temptation to compromise is rarely birthed out of some sort of disdain for God, but what I would call sort of a spiritual amnesia, that we forget the things of God. Can anyone relate to that? Where you look back and you think to yourself, what was I thinking when I did that? How could I have ever behaved in such a way? All of us, I think, are susceptible to this spiritual amnesia, to forget the goodness of God. And here's the truth. We're all in a very real battle. Some of you, you maybe don't need any convincing. Others of you, maybe you have your doubts. We are all in a very real battle between light and darkness, goodness and evil. And our mission is to bring God's kingdom to a world so desperately in need of it. Because the gospel's really only good news if it invades bad spaces, right? That's our goal, helping people find their way back to God, out of darkness, out of slavery, out of oppression, out of whatever it is that crushes us and weighs us down. Our mission is to bring God's kingdom close, to bring it near. And I think there's nothing more that the enemy wants than to stop that. Second thing uh, that I think we need to keep in mind is to dwell in God, to dwell in God. Uh, One of Jesus' closest friends is a guy named John. And John uses this word abide over and over again. And abide is sort of this churchy sounding word, but here's, here's what abide simply means. It means to hang out, to, to spend time with God. I kind of think about it like, uh, like tea. I'm a big believer that there are two kinds of tea drinkers in the world. Um, there are dippers and there are abiders. Some of you, I know, I've seen you at coffee shops. You're the dippers. You know what dippers do? They get the, the water and then they get the tea bag, right? And it's down and it's up and it's down and it's up. Down, swirl around, it's up, down, up, down, up, right? And you like put it on the spoon, you wrap the string around it and you squeeze the juice out of it, right? It's exhausting, stop it. (laughs) And then there are abiders. Do you know what abiders do? Bloop. Oh, tea. (laughs) I think that we'll find that we'll actually get more accomplished. We'll become more alive when we can learn to just simply dwell in who God is and who he made us to be. This same friend of Jesus, John, was writing to a community of Christ followers who were feeling the pressure to compromise their integrity in a number of areas. And here's what he writes to them. He says, you've already won a victory over those people, the ones trying to make them compromise. Because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. Can I get an amen? He's saying the God who already resides in you is far greater than any any temptation, every struggle, any mountain, any darkness, any hurdle, any pothole. He is greater than all of it. We, We so desperately, I think, need to first and foremost Dwell in God and listen to the God who dwells in us. That's how we'll make good choices. That's how we'll live a life of integrity. There's, there's this great phrase that we see over and over again in Joseph's story, and it's this, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. Four times in this little part of the story that shows up. 
The Lord was with him. I think Joseph knew. I think that reality is what allowed Joseph, when pressured, when cornered, to make the decisions that he did. He knew there was someone far greater than him living through him. And to have integrity means that we don't change face when we change company. We don't change face when we change company. We are who we are no matter where we are. And I think this happens when we live in this sort of constant awareness that God is with us, not not just here, not just in this space, not just with our Christian friends. He's with us always. Uh, The third thing, the third principle I want to leave you with um, is we need to do the the next right thing. We need to do the next right thing. I believe Joseph had already made up his mind well, well before this encounter with Potiphar's wife. He'd already made up his mind to do right by Potiphar and to do right by God. There's this uh, great phrase from the 12-step movement, and it's simply this. It says, when you don't know what to do, do the next right thing. When you don't know what to do, do the next right thing. I love, I love the power of that statement. I think we often get so caught up on like 10, 15, 20 years down the road. What is God calling you, inviting you to do right now? And I'm not just speaking in hypotheticals. I mean like all of us, today, this week. What situation, what, what struggle, what, what battle are you fighting that you need to do the next right thing? I think often, uh, like when we come to a crossroads in our lives, um, if you're like me, sometimes that, that voice kind of begins to chime in, right? Like, wow, well, one little detour won't hurt, Right? One, one little offshoot, one little off-ramp. I would, I would respond this way. It's the small decisions we make right now that determine the direction of our life later on. It's the small, seemingly insignificant decisions that we make right now that determine where we're gonna go. Integrity now paves the way for joy later. And those small Seemingly insignificant next right steps. The Apostle Paul uh, shares these assuring words to the church in Corinth. He says, when you're tempted, he being God will show you a way out so that you can endure. He says, when, when you're tempted, he's, he's gonna show you a way out, but then he says, so that you can endure. And I hope you don't miss this. God is not protection from the battle. He's protection in the battle. The battle's happening. It's here. But for Joseph, living faithfully became exactly that, a way of living. It was about doing the next right thing over and over and over again, one decision at a time. And as great as Joseph's example of integrity is, of living an important eulogy virtue, I don't want anyone out of here to leave thinking this, well, I just need to try harder then. Or maybe even worse, I've already messed up, so it's too late for me. As important as this story is, as important as those virtues are, they are not our source of hope. Jesus is. Jesus lived the life of ultimate integrity. When we put our faith in him, He offers us his righteousness. 
so that we can be at peace with God and with others. The Apostle Paul put it this way. It says, for you are all, we are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. I love, I love that picture. It means that we don't have to leave here discouraged or weighed down by guilt or shame because we know that God, God through Jesus has offered us new clothes. Clothes that cover all of our shame, all of our shortfalls, clothes that could never be stripped away no matter what we do, no matter what's been done to us. Think about that. Every morning as we get dressed, we can remember that. Each and every morning as we put our clothes on, we can remember, I'm clothed in Christ. Clothes say a lot about a person, don't they? It's a way of identifying. I think you can tell the difference between a hipster and an athlete often by the way they dress, right? Here's what I think Paul is ultimately saying. When we're clothed in Christ, we're his. We're identified as his. And when God looks at our life, he doesn't, he doesn't see all of our mistakes, all of our sin, all of our error. He sees, he sees Jesus. He sees the righteousness of Jesus who lived the perfect life. And it's our identity that determines our activity. Are you tracking? When we know who we are, we will know what to do. And friends, who you are is a beloved child of God. So we're clothed in him, not just as some sort of protection, not just as some sort of ideal, but in so doing, we identify as Christ's. That's the beauty of grace. That's the beauty of the gift freely given. And every single one of us has the opportunity to receive that gift each and every day. Let's pray. God, thank you that you clothe us not in a system of rules or ideals, but in yourself. God, I pray for every, every person in this room, uh, whether we are feeling uh, really, really confident or really, really busted up or anything, anywhere in between, you would remind us of who we are and whose we are. That we would put our trust and faith more fully and completely in you every single day to do the next right thing. We thank you, God, for the gift of Jesus, for inviting us to be a part of this thing of helping more and more people find their way back to you. We thank you and we love you. We pray all of these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.